If you, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 37. In uh, just a couple minutes, we're going to read verses uh, 21 through 38. Uh, before we do that, I want to kind of remind you, if you weren't here last week, and if you, even if you were, of kind of what happened last week in our passage, because today kind of picks up the second half of that. And so last week, in the, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 37, we saw Hezekiah, the king of Judah, finally, after 37 chapters, turning to the Lord and, and trusting in him. And so uh, Syria comes, they invade, they're on the doorstep of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, he, he repents, he humbles himself, he goes to the temple, and he prays to the Lord. And in his prayer, he recognizes and acknowledges who God is, that, that God is the one who sits on the throne above all the other thrones. He's the one who's enthroned even over the king of Assyria who's threatening to invade Jerusalem. He recognizes that, that he is the God, he said, the, the God uh, that is the only God, that he's the maker of heaven and earth, and that there's no other besides him. And so he starts by just emphasizing who God is in his prayer. And then, after that, he asks God to act. He asks him to, to hear and see what the Assyrians are doing, how they're, they're threatening his people, and how they're kind of denouncing who God is. Uh, and then he asks God to act and save them, not, not for their benefit. Uh, I mean, surely he wants that as well, but he's focused mainly on, on God's glory and his name being known among all the other nations, uh, even among Assyrians. So he, he prays, and that's where we left it. We left it with his prayer kind of hanging out there. Uh, and in our passage today, what we're going to read in just a moment is God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. So we're going to read verses 21 through 38 of Isaiah 37. This is what happens next. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters, to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his god, Adrimelech and Sherezer his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that answers prayer. And that even when we feel like you don't answer that the truth is that we just don't know what your answer is yet. We thank you that your word tells us that you are not slow to keep your promises, but that you are patient with your people and you give us time to repent. God, I pray today that as we look at your word together, as we see uh, your response to Hezekiah's prayer for salvation, that you would increase our faith in our prayers that you would increase our faith in, in you as the one that we pray to, that we would be encouraged to make use of the access that was purchased for us on the cross by Christ, and that we would come before you and present our requests and know that, that you do keep your promises, that you do hear our prayers, that you are bringing your kingdom, you are causing your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that you would help us to, to long for you to bring that kingdom and that will in its fullness. Even as we wait for answers now. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and that it's because of you that we can worship and, and learn from your word together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in this passage, we get God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. And his response kind of comes in, in three forms. There's, there's two kind of separate messages or, or words that he gives him about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And then there's a sign that he gives him kind of in the middle that is, is the, the kind of the proof or, or what Hezekiah can look to that these two words that he's said about Sennacherib are going to come to pass. So he answers his prayer by telling him what he's going to do, and then he gives him a sign saying, this is how you're going to know that I'm really going to do this. And so the first kind of word he says about Sennacherib comes in verses 22 through 29. But before we get there, notice how the passage begins. It begins by him saying, then Isaiah sends to Hezekiah saying, this is the word about your prayer. Because you have prayed, this is the message that you're, you're getting. But he starts it all with, with then. And I think this is important for us because for us, there's been a whole week in between his prayer and the answer. Uh, and for us, a lot of stuff has probably happened in that week. And we've probably forgotten most of what happened in the passage last week. Uh, that even happens to me when I preach, where I preach one passage and the next week I think, wait a second, what was in the passage last week? Uh, 
because of that, I want to point out that the way Isaiah presents this story, and for him, it's, it's his life, right? He's telling what's happening as it unfolds in his life. He presents it as Hezekiah prays, and then the very next thing that happens in the book is God answers Hezekiah's prayer. That's really important for us to see because I think it highlights yet another big, big contrast between who God is and who we are. Because think about the story in Isaiah that we've experienced up to this point, right? God has come to them, like the very opening words of the book of Isaiah, he's calling the people to repentance. And then he's done it again and again and again and again for 37 chapters. He's been calling them to repent. He's been calling them to turn to the Lord and trust in him. But instead, they trust in Egypt. They trust in Assyria. They trust in their own plans and their own schemes. They do everything they possibly can other than the one thing that God has been calling them to do since the very beginning. They trust in so many other things. And I think we know that when we're in a situation like this with people, or maybe we've been encouraging them to do something, and they don't do it, and then they finally do it, we maybe want to make them wait a little bit. We want to make them feel maybe a little bit of what we felt as we were asking them to do that thing, and they didn't do it, 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 and they didn't do that. So now they're going to wait like we waited. But that's not what God does. Hezekiah finally, 37 chapters later, he turns to the Lord and then immediately after he prays, because he prayed, he gives him this message about Sennacherib. This is God keeping the promise that he made earlier in the book of Isaiah when he said, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and he rises to show mercy to you. God is patient with his people. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And as soon as Hezekiah prays, he answers. Absolutely praise God. His response to Hezekiah's prayer is a demonstration of who he is, even as Hezekiah just acknowledged it in prayer. That God is ready with an answer, and he answers him about Sennacherib. This is what God is going to do. So it starts with Jerusalem taunting Assyria. Uh, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you. So just before, in chapter 36, Assyria comes to Jerusalem. They've got their huge army surrounding the city, and they taunt Jerusalem. They say, your God can't save you. Your king can't save you. We're here, and we're going to win. You've got no hope. Your only hope is to give up, and then we'll take you somewhere else where your life will be better. But now the tables have turned because God has answered Hezekiah's prayer and Jerusalem is the one that does the taunting. They taunt Assyria. And then God calls into account in verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. So in our passage last week, uh, the, the, the king of Assyria sent a messenger to Jerusalem to deliver what, what he wanted to say. And what he said was for the most part true. Right? He had conquered all these other nations. Uh, God had sent him to conquer Jerusalem and the people of Judah in judgment against them. He sent them there to kind of discipline his people. And all of that was good. But then the king of Assyria got to a part where he got cocky. And he said, I conquered all these other gods. And just like I conquered all these other gods, I'm going to conquer your God. Because your God is not a God, just like their gods aren't gods. And that's the point where the Lord starts preparing this message. Because he's uh, reviled God, because he's raised his voice against him, God is now going to act and answer Hezekiah's prayer. 
Uh, his servants have mocked the Lord. And he said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. He talks about all this stuff that he did, which is a problem because he himself knows that that's not true. Last week in our passage, in 36 uh, verse 10, he said, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So the king of Assyria knew from the very beginning that everything that he was doing and all the victory that he was having, he was having because God sent him to do this work. But then when he gets there and he's conquered all those enemies and he's got his big army, he begins to think, this is my doing. I've done these things. He taunts God and then God makes him pay for it. And he reminds him in verse 26, have you not heard? that I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. So God is the one who's saying, this, this, this is my doing. I determined it, I planned it, and I'm the one that's bringing it to pass. The king of Assyria, his army, it's just a tool that God is using to accomplish his purposes. And just so that we can't wriggle out from underneath this and say, well, God is maybe doing some of this, he makes it very clear what it is that he determined, planned, and brings to pass. It's that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. This is what God has determined, planned, and brings to pass. He used Assyria to wreak havoc and cause devastation in Israel and Judah so that he could discipline his people and bring them back to him. This is what he's caused to happen. And kind of before we, we move on past this point, right, when we see God saying, just like he's done throughout the book of Isaiah this morning, he's, he's claiming credit for orchestrating history to cause all of these things that are happening on the world stage. He's the one who's doing these things, right? So, so he's causing these things to happen. It's not the king of Assyria. It's not Egypt. It's not Hezekiah. It's not anybody else. He's the one that's in control. Um, he's, he's emphasizing his sovereignty, his, his rule over his creation. But he's also doing this in response to Hezekiah's prayer. And and sometimes, for us, those two things can be hard to reconcile. Right? God determined it long ago. He planned it from days of old. He's bringing it to pass. And yet Hezekiah prays, and then God steps into action and stops the king of Assyria. So which, which is it? Is, is God in control? Is he planning things from, from long ago? Or is, is Hezekiah causing kind of history to change its course because he prays? Like which, can, can both of those things be true at the same time? The Bible's answer is absolutely, right? It, Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah doesn't have any problem putting those things side by side. Neither does the rest of scripture. God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his plan. And so he is in control. He is orchestrating history. He has planned it long ago. And he even planned long ago that at this point of Isaiah, Hezekiah is going to come into the temple and he's going to pray and he's going to ask God to act. He's going to answer Hezekiah's prayer and he's going to act and he's going to strike down the king of Assyria. So God is orchestrating history and he uses our prayers to do it. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that because sometimes people will see passages like this and they'll say, well, if God has determined it long ago and if he's planned it from days past, then, then what's, 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 what's our, what's our role in it? 
Like, what's the point of us praying if, if God has planned everything? And R.C. Sproul one time responded to that question by saying, what's the point of praying if God isn't in control? <laughs> right, if, if he can't step into history and change it, then why would we pray? The only reason why we should pray is because he is in control, because he can act, because he can change the course of history. We should pray because he can do exactly what he does for Hezekiah in this passage. He answers his prayer and he changes his circumstances. And it was part of his plan to do that. So we should absolutely be people who pray, even though we're people that recognize that God is in control, that he has planned history, and he's planned our lives and what will happen in the future. Because part of his plan is to cause his people to pray. I think another question that we should ask here, you know, if, if God is in control, if he does respond to people's prayers, is what, what do we do if we feel like he doesn't answer our prayers? Right. Last week, when we kind of ended the passage, I, I encouraged you uh, and myself to this week intentionally pray and ask God to, to act in the midst of our lives, right? To come before him, acknowledge who he is, uh, to ask him to help us with whatever we're doing at the time, and to ask him to be glorified in it. Um, and if you're like me, you probably did that really well at the beginning of the week. Maybe Sunday afternoon, maybe Monday morning. Uh, and then the week maybe got away from you. Or maybe there were parts of the week where you really intentionally tried to pray about specific things in your life that you're struggling with or that you're facing, and, and maybe you didn't feel like God answered those prayers in the same way that we see him answering Hezekiah's prayer. Or maybe there's been other points of your life, right, where you've prayed for a loved one, uh, for, for them to get better and, and to be healed, and God didn't answer that prayer and they died. Or, or they're still struggling with the same thing. Or maybe you've prayed that God would, would deliver you from a specific sin struggle, and he hasn't done that. And so you might think, well, well, why hasn't God answered this prayer? Why isn't he doing in my life what he seems to do for the life of people in Scripture? Um, and I think that when we begin to feel that way, we need to think bigger and, and more long-term. Right, because the reality is, is that God is going to answer all of those prayers. Right, he, he didn't heal my mom when I prayed for her from liver disease. She died. But guess what? She doesn't have liver disease anymore. So he didn't answer that prayer in the specific way that I wanted him to answer that prayer. But he absolutely healed her and freed her from that disease. And he might not heal your loved one of whatever disease they're struggling with. He might not heal you of whatever disease you might get in the future. He might not heal you of the specific sin struggle that you have right now. But guess what? Freedom is coming and healing is coming and disease is going away and sadness and suffering and sorrow are going away. Those answers are coming in the future because Jesus is coming. And I know that even though that's the answer, that that answer doesn't always satisfy right now. But that's okay, because satisfaction is coming. And so we need to recognize that just because he hasn't answered yet, the response for us is the same, right? Have faith in God, because he's going to answer every prayer. 
they all find a yes in the end. Back to the passage, he, he talks about you know, how he's orchestrating these events. And then he tells Sennacherib, this king of Assyria, that he knows him. He knows his sitting down. He knows his going out. He's coming in. He knows his raging against him. He knows who Sennacherib is. And because of who he is, because he's raged against him, he's going to put his hook in his nose and his bit in his mouth. He's going to show Sennacherib who really is in control. He's going to turn him back on the way by which he came. Sennacherib's going to go back to Assyria by the way that he came. And then, in verse 30, he gives Hezekiah the sign. This is how we can know that these things are going to come to pass. He says, uh, This year you shall eat what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year you shall sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he tells them that they're going to survive the current crisis. There's going to be enough people left over to plant plant and sow and reap and harvest. These things are going to happen. Um, and he says that it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's going to do this. So it's not going to depend on Hezekiah. It's not going to depend upon the people. God is going to accomplish these things for his flame, fame, for his glory. And so because of that, they absolutely know it's going to come to pass because it doesn't depend on them. It depends on him. But notice the long-term nature of this sign. Right? He could have given Hezekiah a much clearer sign. Like, you're going to go outside, and it's going to be raining, and then it's going to stop raining, and then it's going to start raining again, and then it's going to stop raining, and it's going to start raining again, and then you'll know that I'm really going to do these things. But instead, he gives him a three-year agricultural promise. This year, you're going to eat what comes out of the ground. Next year, you're going to eat what springs from that. Three years from now, you're going to plant, sow, and reap. Three years. And you'll know that I'm going to do these things. I think the reason why he does that is because he knows Hezekiah. Right? He's been laboring with Hezekiah for 37 chapters. And he doesn't want Hezekiah to trust in the sign. He wants Hezekiah to trust in him. He wants Hezekiah to depend on him. And so he gives him a sign that forces him to wait and to keep trusting the Lord, that the Lord is going to do what he said he would do. So that his faith is in God and his promise and not in some sign that can be immediately verifiable. Then he delivers the rest of the message about the king of Assyria. Here he gives him some specific promises about Jerusalem. He's not going to come into the city. He's, he's not even going to shoot an arrow there or come before it with a, seed, a shield or a siege mount. Uh, by the same way he came, he's going to return. He's not going to step foot in the city. Why? Verse 35, because I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Why does he mention David there? Right? David, David isn't in this story. Hezekiah is in this story. He mentions David because he's referring to the promise that he made to David. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God told David, David comes to the Lord and he says, I want to build a temple. And God says, no, you're not going to build a temple for me. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. After you die, your son is going to be king after you. And when your son dies, his son's going to be king after him. And when he dies, his son's going to be king after him. And you're always going to have a descendant on the throne. And eventually, one of those descendants is going to reign on that throne forever. And what he's telling David is that this redeemer that's been promised throughout the Old Testament up to that point, the, the Messiah, is going to be a king in David's line. 
So the Messiah is going to be a king. He's going to reign on David's throne forever. And so when he gets to this point in Isaiah 37, he tells him that he's going to save the city uh, for the sake of his servant David. He's saying that he's going to keep his promise to David. And that's important because Hezekiah is one of those descendants of David. And if Sennacherib invades the city and kills everyone and kills Hezekiah, that promise dies with Hezekiah. But God says, I'm going to save the city and I'm going to save you, not because of you, but because of the promise that I made to David. And that's important because if you were to flip over to Matthew 1, you'd see in verses 9 and 10 the name Hezekiah. It's He is in Jesus' lineage. Jesus comes as one of the descendants of Hezekiah. And so God saves Hezekiah so that later Jesus can come into the world and be that descendant of David who reigns on his throne forever. That's why he's keeping this promise. That's why he's coming to save his people. Not because they deserve it, but because he is gracious and abounding in steadfast love because he keeps his promises, because he is faithful when his people are faithless. And then this is what happens. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. We don't know exactly how God did this. Uh, Some people think it was a plague. Some people think it was something else. But 185,000 dead bodies. Something like he did in Egypt when he struck down the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. This is a miraculous thing. Uh, And the result is that Sennacherib leaves. He departed, returns home, and lives at Nineveh. And then he tells us, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. Back in Isaiah 37, 7, the Lord said that Sennacherib would be killed by the sword in his own land. That's what happens. It's exactly how he dies. He's struck down by his sons in the temple of his god. I think we should notice the irony that this passage ends with. Right, The story begins by Hezekiah going into the temple. Hezekiah is praying in a temple that's in the middle of a city that's surrounded by an army that is bigger and badder and worse than any threat they could imagine. And they are saying, we are going to come into your city and kill you. Hezekiah prays in the midst of that dangerous situation. God answers and saves him. The chapter ends with the king of Assyria in a temple, in a city, in relative safety. No one's going to attack Nineveh. And yet he dies praying to his God in his temple. Because false gods don't save. And that's the message that Isaiah has been delivering since the very early chapters of his book. Is that salvation only comes through trusting in God. And that's why Hezekiah gets saved and Sennacherib dies because his God can't save him. I'm going to pray and then Daniel's going to come and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in in remembrance of that truth, that salvation only comes from trusting in God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you reign on the throne that is above every other throne. That you are in control and that you bring to pass what you planned and determined long ago. And I thank you that you allow us as your people to participate in that plan, that we have the privilege of coming before you in prayer, 
Thank you that even though we don't understand and, and, and can't understand exactly how those two truths work together, that they do. I pray that you would help us to trust in you and not in anything that we might try to elevate as worthy of trust beside you. Pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today, as we continue in worship in the rest of the service, that you would help us to do that rightly with, with pure hearts, that we would not be consumed with the thought of others around us or, or ourselves, but that instead our focus would be on you and giving you the praise that is due your name. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that you died in our place as our substitute, that you came as a descendant of David, and that you reign as king on his throne. Thank you that your body was broken, your blood was shed for us and for our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen.